Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 000123 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands, which is on the Wurundjeri people's land, who are members of the Kulin Nation. Um, Now, uh, I pay my respects to uh, their elders past and present and emerging, but this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, just uh, making sure that you can hear me this evening, but I'm sure you can. Now, there's been a bit go down uh, since we last spoke, uh, namely the earthquake. I uh, hope you pulled through that one okay. It had me thinking for the first time in a long time that epidemi- epidemiologists were of no longer use to me, dead to me as a matter of fact. The centre of my world quickly drifted from those public health nerds that we've come to know and love over to the world of seismology. It quickly became evident, though, that their home lighting setups were subpar, not used to crossing to afternoon briefings or the project about half a dozen times a week, meant their live cross games were just awkward and up, not up to speed. They sat there in poor lighting and had slight awkwardness about being asked dumb as batch questions from the nation's journalists. Anyway, I digress. Um, I am now firmly, firmly back in the epi camp, and I'm also back to looking at how the pandemic affects different segments of the community disproportionately. Now, let's take a look at that. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has a thing called the Index of Relative Socioeconomic Disadvantage, IRSD. It takes into account factors like income, qualifications, language skills, and family size. And when you apply that index as an overlay to where case numbers are in this town, it shows very clearly, as The Guardian did a great job of explaining, that there are almost 5,000 cases in the most disadvantaged Melbourne local government areas all since the 1st of June of this year. In that same time, there has been just over 500 cases in the most advantaged areas. The Hume local government area alone has more, had more than 1,500 cases per 100,000 residents. Meanwhile, some of the more affluent LGAs have had as little as 17 cases per 100,000 residents. That's 17, not 1,700, 17. And when you add a further overlay, such as the Social Infrastructure Index from the Australian Urban Observatory, which looks at the average distance to services like health, education, early childhood, culture and emergency services, the index shows that those suburbs with the largest outbreaks of COVID have the least readily available access to services they need in a geographic sense. And when you add to this lack of green space, which means that if you want to catch up with friends and family, you're far more likely to meet up with them in their homes because there is less opportunity to meet in parks. It means that you are more likely to be a casual worker as well with no entitlements, which leaves you um, more susceptible to not being able to work because you have the illness or that you're in quarantine. Um, I know the state and federal governments have put in measures to ensure that people have access to funds during self-quarantine. But communicating that and the ability of people to navigate the systems and the forms required to survive and access those funds is another hurdle for people to jump over. 
Now, I mentioned this last year, but I think it's time to probably mention it again. So next time you hear someone demanding to open up, and I'm not talking about anti-vaxxers, why would anyone listen to anything they've got to say about anything? I mean the political leaders, our, our business leaders, our civic leaders, and the minor celebrities and, dare I say, the dreaded influencers. Next time you hear them whining about opening up, you might want to check which suburb they're currently residing because I'm tipping it probably won't be Tullamarine, Malton, Craggyburn or Greater Dandenong where this thing has a stranglehold at the moment. So at the moment during the pandemic, one of the greatest challenges throughout this entire thing is to try and keep a hold on what's actually really happening and trying to negate the spin and propaganda of various bandied around interest groups. Because there are people out there that are actually doing it really, really hard at the moment through no default of their own. They are more at risk of COVID and everything around it. And if we're going to continue to call ourselves a society, then we owe it to those people on the front line to ensure that they are getting the care and attention they need and that we need to plan beyond this to address some of the disparities between the different parts of our city to make sure that they are ironed out in the years to come because no one should be disadvantaged just because they are born into a particular postcode. Uh, but on to tonight's show, uh, we've got, uh, uh, hopefully, another really uh, interesting show for you. I'm sure it will be. Shortly, I'll be joined by Leanne Carter. Leanne is a statewide community justice programs leader at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. A federal court case has been launched against the Morrison government seeking fair and equal access to the age pension for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So you'll be asking yourself, what does all that mean? Well, we'll dive into all that with Leanne very, very, very shortly. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined by the CEO of the Healing Foundation, Fiona Cornforth. She'll speak to us about the importance of timely access to records for members of the Stolen Generation. So stick around. It promises to be illuminating. The best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle, at MrDTJames. But this is the mission... This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel. A federal court case has been launched against the Morrison government seeking fair and equal access to a, to the age pension for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Proud Wacka Wacka man Dennis is bringing the case that will require the federal government to face court for the first time in connection with its failure, really, to close the gap in life expectancy between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people in Australia. Dennis is bringing this case with the support of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and the Human Rights Law Centre and the law law firm DLA Piper. As most listeners would know, uh, there still remains a sizeable gap between life expectancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men have an average life expectancy 8.6 years lower than non-Indigenous men, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women uh, on average, 7.8 years shorter life expectancy than non-Indigenous women. So this case is a real-world test of holding government to account when it comes to closing the gap. Here to speak to us about all this is Leanne Carter. Leanne is a Wiradjuri Noongar woman and is also the statewide community service. Sorry, is the statewide community justice programs leader at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. So she knows a thing or two about this case. And I'm very happy to say that Leanne is on the line now. Leanne, welcome to the mission. Thank you, and thanks for having me on tonight to discuss this matter. Uh, How did the the case come about? Let's start at the top. 
Okay. So I suppose the case came about, um, as you said, by Uncle Dennis, and he's 64 years of age. And what's happened is he's actually at a stage in his life where um, he needs to apply for the age pension. And unfortunately, because of the rules at the moment, as we know, you have to be 66 and a half years old. Um, and that's going to go up by the year 2023. That'll go up to 67 because they're finding that Australians are living a lot more longer. So at present, until you're 66 years of age, you can't apply for the age pension. So what this has brought about is Dennis has decided after, you know, a lot of loss and growing up and working his entire life that he's seen a lot of people, of his people, die too young. And for him, you know, it's not just about a case of the pension, it's about holding the government to account and telling the truth about, you know, what, what the impacts of colonisation on these people have been and on Aboriginal communities today. Tell us, tell us a little bit, Dennis. You know, he's, he's someone that's been has, has worked his entire life and um, uh, uh, continues to, to work and, and contribute towards the community. What what, what can you tell us about um, about him? He's he's actually got a really interesting background, Uncle Dennis. Like he talks about, you know, his story where he was born ten years after the referendum. And he was saying that he started work at the age of 10 and started farming. But, you know, at that time they were putting out young Aboriginal um, kids into, like, training farms, you know, to train them up as workers. And he talks about how he was originally paid $2 a fortnight. And then that went up to $4 a fortnight. And, you know, what he was meant to be getting paid way back then even was $60. So yeah. I'm... Uncle Dennis actually, um, he became part of the stolen wages claim in Queensland where, you know, the state government up there, you know, they had to pay all that money back to of those stolen wages. So, you know, despite working hard since, you know, he was 10 years old, he hasn't been able to save a lot, you know, a lot of his assets and savings up to support himself in retirement. And, you know, he, one day he's going to have to rely on that pension like a lot of other people do. Yeah, so he's he's sixty three at the moment. The the, the government 64. is sixty four. Okay, so the government is moving the goalposts around the the retirement age for for, for people. And I guess Leanne, this is a question of um, quality of life as well. It's not just a question of um, of of the, the 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 amount of money that comes through the pension. It's also about Aboriginal people who are dying significantly younger than non Aboriginal people having access to that pension at an earlier age so they can enjoy a quality of life. Yes, certainly. And, you know, one of the big things, you know, that this case is going to bring about and the argument around it is that everyone should enjoy the same human rights protections, you know, and that's that's the right to social security, the right to adequate standing of living, the right to access proper health services and have proper outcomes. And in this particular matter is that at current, because a whole, you know, a whole mob of people are living longer, there's an expectation that people are going to be working longer. Now, mm. and when we think about the impacts of discrimination and disadvantage on, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's lives, it's going to be significantly harder to work to, you know, 67 years of age. And nobody, nobody should be expected to work any more than they're capable of working. 
and we know, you know, a lot of people have disabilities. We know a lot of people have comorbid issues with health issues. And for some reason or another, whether that be family commitments, carer commitments, which in our community there is a lot of that, mm. you know, that takes away that capacity to actually build up those resources. And we're not talking about a big ask. What we're talking about is at least three years earlier, which is also going to be examined within the court, to access something that we may not live long enough to actually enjoy like everybody else does. And at present, less than 1% of all the people that receive the aged care pension are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Yeah, that's a, that's a very revealing figure uh, in, in, in itself. Um, I guess as well as rectifying the existing inequality of access to the pension, um, lowering the pension age would in itself support a number of closing the gap targets by helping to improve economic participation, um, improve financial security and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who, who can no, no longer work. So it's a, there's, there's that added benefit as well. Absolutely. And, you know, Recently, I've heard and seen a lot of discussions, you know, just around the lockdowns and about loss of freedom, strict conditions, and, you know, that people have felt. And there's also been discussions about, you know, that segregation of whether someone's vaccinated or not vaccinated. Now, we're talking about 18 months in comparison to hundreds of years, right? But if you're Aboriginal, do you understand that loss? You understand that loss of language, of culture, identity, connection, language, you know, our customs. And it's the ongoing trauma and the impact of this loss of freedom and the discriminatory, you know, those racist segregation policies that were introduced by the government many years ago that have had that lasting impact on our people. And this is why the life expectancy gap exists today, because of these discriminatory practices and exclusion and the impact that it's had. And the government has failed since 2008, since it made that commitment to lower the life expectancy rates. And, you know, one of, one of um, the most recent findings from the age care, the, you know, the Aged Care Royal Commission was that the government was deafening, deafening silence on Aboriginal aged care within under-closing the gap. So they've yeah, failed that's... on that account. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the, the closing the gap agenda now has been around for, what, seven to 17, 15, 16, something like that, long enough. Yeah, it's been since around about 2008, yeah. To, since 2008, and there has been, um, you know, a whole range of task force set up. There's been a whole structure around national partnerships set up between state and uh, federal governments, and yet we're not seeing any sort of uh, closure on on this at all. We're seeing slight improvements in, um, I think, birth weight. I think we're seeing slight improvements in early educational attainment. And I think we're seeing slight improvements in um, uh, high school graduation, year 12 completion. But at the end of the day, there's going to be three or four, at least three or four generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are going to continue to suffer poor health outcomes and not live as long as, as the rest of, po- rest of the population. Is this, in a way, a form of reparations? No. No, this is, this is not a form of reparation. This is around equity and this is around fairness and this is around the fact that the Commonwealth has introduced a law and under the Racial Discrimination Act, under Section 10, it says that if any race, or, per, you know, or, or people of background, of a particular background, cannot enjoy that law to the extent of the others, 
then they should change it. And that's what they should do. We can't enjoy those laws because they haven't closed that gap. Now, in one small way, you know, the federal government can be held accountable through this particular case by failing, you know, to cover the gap, but also take adequate action. Like these areas you were talking about before, you know, around education and around health, all of those fundamentally go to someone's health and well-being. And if the government is not closing the targets and providing those, you know, all of those gaps, people are still going to suffer from poor health. People aren't going to live long enough to actually enjoy the benefits that everybody else does. So this isn't about reparations. This is about protecting human rights. This is about having fair and equitable justice, having a decent standard of living, telling our elders that we respect them enough that they contributed within our society, that now it's our turn that we take care of them. You know, that, that's what it's about. What you're saying, Leanne, is it's about what's doing. It's about what's doing right. You know, it's, it's it's the right thing. It's the right thing to do, and we're trying to look after our own here. And this is one mechanism that we can try to apply to to, to do that. Um, it's 21 past seven here on the mission. Um, I'm speaking with Leanne Carter. She is from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and she is the statewide community justice programs uh, leader there. And we're talking about a case that has been brought forward to the federal. Uh, court to try and reduce the age of the pension for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Whereabouts are we in terms of those proceedings, Leanne? Where, where does it sit in the procedural sense? So last Thursday, the case was actually filed, all the um, paperwork was filed with the federal court. So now, you know, obviously we've got to go through the process of having it listed and, you know, having that allocation and that. So this is going to be an ongoing um, case to really watch. And the benefit, if this matter gets up, is going to be... The benefit is going to be huge, you know what I mean? Sometimes you hear mm. it's not just a number, but it's that number that's discriminating at the moment that could potentially raise the standard of living within our communities. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a real world test of what is basically uh, a policy agenda at the moment, isn't it? It's actually being able to, if it gets up, it's actually the first time a a government will be held to account in a in a real sense to failing to meet the outcomes as espoused in the closing the gap agenda. Exactly, and without going in and being able to suspend on occasions that we know have happened in the past, the Racial Discrimination Act, in order to introduce it, um, yeah, right. to introduce other laws and things like that as well. But as I said, you know, when, when we're talking about raising the living stand, you know, the standard of living for people, we're also talking about, you know ensuring that they are looked after, that they have the access that, you know, many other people, as I said, already have the access to. And we know when people have poor poor health, poor, um, you know, and they're living in poverty or they may be homeless, poverty is itself one of the biggest drivers for incarceration. And, it, it, and it's not something that we're just making up anecdotally here. I mean, there was a real commission into the aged care sector which laid bare the serious disadvantages experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders. Um, but the Royal Commission itself, you know, highlighted the extent to which our elders have, have been let down in the process and their diminished critical role as elders in sustaining the world's, you know, oldest living culture. Um, 
So this is not something that we're just pulling out of a hat here. There's been a Royal Commission here, and it's actually exposed some of these fundamental flaws with the way our elders have been treated. Absolutely. And one really good thing about that, and I hope it's not the same as any other commission, is that them commissioners, they actually really listen to them elders in there. And the stark revelation of how things actually were was, as you say, it was laid out. It was laid out there. And that's where the criticism came in that, you know, this government has been so silent in this space. So there's got to be some transparency and there's got to be some accountability on why aren't they closing these gaps? Why is it left up to a commission to have to point out just how silent and inactive they are on closing the gap, particularly around our elders, particularly around people that have contributed, that have been part of our society, that have experienced all this unfairness and this discrimination. I mean, nobody, nobody wants any of the elderly family members to be treated quite poorly or to be put in a situation where they can't access the services or the cultural supports that they need. And it's it's just symptomatic of what we've seen in recent history, Leanne, in terms of there being a series of rural commissions across a range of areas. And I would say that probably the vast majority of those rural commissions have made recommendations that are sound and good, but where the process and and the action to, to address some of the those recommendations has fallen down time and time again has been at the federal level and state level, the governmental level, to actually introduce and implement those recommendations. And we're seeing the same thing here. And so, hence, we're going to court. (laughs) That's it. We're going to court. We'll see you in court. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what what is – I mean, obviously, we know what the outcome is that you're looking for, but what do you think – you know, this is the last question. I'll let you go after this and um, enjoy your evening. What what do you think the implications will be for um, Uncle Dennis and for the broader legal context if his case is to be successful? It will mean that the government will have to be held accountable and make the change, but the most significant part is that that it it will improve the lives of our elderly people. It will improve the lives of people that can no longer work or in a situation, you know, that they can no longer work, improve their health outcomes, look at providing some stability and economic financial stability within our lives and overall their well-being and their health, and that's what we want. Yeah, it's a, it's a you know it's a timely reminder. A lot of the a lot of the people listening now would be driving past the the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service on uh, Nicholson Street, probably on a fairly regular basis, knowing the demographic of of the audience. And time and time again, more often than not, actually, you actually drive past there, and the uh, flag is at half mast. And that flag is at half mast because we usually have an elder or a, an auntie or an uncle or, or someone's mother or father that have died before their time. And so, you know, this is not something that we're just talking about in an academic sense. This is something that affects the lives of Aboriginal people. And we thank people like Leanne Carter for actually taking the fight to where it needs to be taken to try and protect our Aboriginal elders and to make sure that um, they're around and have a quality of life so they can espouse and give knowledge to to future generations. So, Leanne, thank you so much for your work. Um, Let's keep abreast of this. Uh, We'll have you back on the show to see how things are going. But um, in the meantime, just stay deadly, okay? You too. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel. Now, it may not have occurred to you, but today is the International Day for Universal Access to Information. And it's on days like today that we are reminded that access to information is fundamentally a human right. Informed citizens can make informed decisions, for instance, when going to the polls, um, and only only when citizens know how they are governed can they hold their governments accountable for their decisions and actions. Information is power, and therefore universal access to information is a cornerstone of a healthy and inclusive knowledge societies. But if we drill down deeper into a local context to say what this means for members of the stolen generation, the right to access records can go to the heart of identity and knowing and therefore can be a key component of healing and truth-telling, not only for members of the stolen generation but for society as a whole. Uh, Here to speak to us about the importance of access to information for members of the Stolen Generation is the CEO of the Healing Foundation, Fiona Cornforth. Fiona is a Woodhutty descendant of the far northeast Cape of Queensland with family roots also in the Torres Strait Islanders. Islands, sorry. Uh, she has an extensive background working as part of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people's community, business and government initiatives for the better outcomes and impact. This is her passion, so she's landed on her feet by becoming the CEO of the Healing Foundation. And I'm very, very pleased to say that Fiona is on the line with us now. Fiona, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thanks very much, Daniel. Great to be on again. Um, give us um, you know, a refresher. I probably probably asked this last time, but give us a refresher on the role of the Healing, Healing Foundation so people can contextualise this discussion a little bit. Yeah, no worries. We were uh, set up. Um, as, a, as an organisation, um, a, a year after uh, Kevin Rudd, so the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology to stolen generations and their families and communities and uh, what happened um, after that commitment and that announcement by government was a national dialogue uh, with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, to, to seek an understanding of what a healing foundation should do um, and should look like for our people. And uh, our, our mandate is to work, al- as a result, is to work alongside communities to address trauma caused by the widespread and deliberate disruption of populations, cultures and languages uh, over the 230 years since colonisation, and this includes specific actions like the forced removal of children from their families. And so uh, we um, have a very special responsibility to work alongside stolen generation survivors uh, and to highlight the unmet needs and the burden that uh, survivors and their families still carry today. It's such an important area for uh, for there to be this sort of work involved because we know, Fiona, that um, the, the the impact of uh, stolen generations actually filters down and, and those trauma lines continue on through generations post the stolen generation. So it's really important that this work is taking place at the moment. Uh, absolutely. And um, 
there's more and more evidence to back up testimony now um, to, to link the historical trauma to uh, the contemporary and um, uh, how uh, through generations um, we've passed on ways to cope with trauma, ways to protect our families uh, and our, our responses and, and default positions um, when, when we're in distress. And um, that continues if unresolved and unaddressed. Yes. And it, it hasn't been for the most part. Yes, very much so. Um, let's let's bring us back to um, International Day for Universal Access uh, to Information and what it means for, for the stolen generation. Um, the Bringing Them Home report showed that access to individual and family stolen generations records was fundamental to locating and reunifying families. But all these years later, I think that report came out in about 1997, access to those records continues to remain a problem. Yeah, it does. And look, um, it's not uh, hard to imagine that they were stored um, and um, kept uh, without having in mind the the future potential for these to play such a key role in the healing of stolen generations. And so, look, they are managed, records are managed differently um, under different legislation in each state and territory uh, and are administered differently by individual mm. churches, institutions and other non-government agencies. We know there are also a range of private collections. Um, and so, you know, there's multiple and inconsistent processes when, when uh, you know, that stolen generations have to face when they're looking at um, searches for family records it's uh, you know tends to be a miracle each time that um, people can uh, actually uh, link up and restore some of those connections. It must be an absolute nightmare navigating all those various systems. Like you said, state and territory um, uh, have different legis legislation um, according to their jurisdiction. Um, they are administered differently by individual churches and non-government agencies. And you, as you mentioned, there are also private collections. Um, it must be so daunting for, for, for a member of the stolen generation to even know where to start with some of this. Look, it absolutely is, and um, I um, want to just mention and um, pay homage to the network of uh, Stolen Generations organisations across the country and link-ups who um, work so tirelessly in this space, often mm. on not a lot of money. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, we, we have a role in this. Um, in the last three to four years, we undertook an action plan for healing uh, pointing to those um, unaddressed uh, recommendations and um, findings of, of the Bringing Them Home report. And in our action plan for healing, uh, there are a lot of uh, findings uh, around um, the, you know, the barriers to, to access. Um, and uh, look, um, we're grateful to have a role, uh, even though that work has completed now, in bringing together the stakeholders in... Um, 
ensuring the right people, the right experts. Um, so for example, the Australian Society of Archivists and yes. others. Um, you know, we can um, build solutions together and um, lobby together. Um, some of these things aren't... Um, you know, we, we've also created a module, um, a training module, so that um, people who, who uh, keep records or, um, you know, uh, form, formulate or design some of these processes for people accessing records can understand exactly what it means for a family and what it means for healing. And um, as you mentioned before, it, it is daunting and it can be quite unsafe and it's just another setting, particularly in government-run government um, programs uh, and records management. It, it is another setting that can re-trigger and yes. re-traumatise. And so it, uh, this module, um, and it's you know working closely with other stakeholders, we're hoping that's promoted widely, um, that it allows, you know, as I said, those in the space to recognise the opportunity they have to contribute to healing and to make it a warm interaction and a supportive interaction that um, assists with um, doing no more harm. Yeah, as you mentioned, you, you've developed a, a module in conjunction with the Australian Society of Archivists, and that module is called the Better Access to Stolen Generation Records Learning Module. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's fundamentally critical that if you're trying to help someone find their identity, explore their history and find out where they come from, that that process itself is as seamless and pleasant as possible because, like you said, it uh, risks re-traumatising people even further. Let's let's just, you know, if there are any archivists out there or people that are interested in, in this, why, and it seems like a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, why is it so important that people have the ability to access these records? Well, it was just um, building the knowing. Uh, you know, it's um, allowing someone to strengthen their belonging uh, and uh, the the possibility of reuniting with um, your biological roots, your your families, the, the, that safe, loving, and nurturing family mm. um, that you're separated from. It um, can make all the difference. It's knowing parents, siblings, aunts and uncles, cousins and community. You know, um, uh, a lot of our survivors uh, testify and speak about an internal spirituality that they take with them. But, you know, it's it's um, strengthened. It's the missing piece of the puzzle. It's, um, you know, the affirming and the validating of, of that. Um, that can happen when when some of these connections are restored and um, when the truth of your family history, um, you know, confronting as it as it is and and challenging to um, to accept um, in in today's Australia, it it does um, we know it does provide um, such support for healing um, it, you know not not um, finding out um, such information is is tough it's just a tougher road um, it it's um, possible 
but um, where where possible, we we'd like this access to not, you know, barri- the barriers to access to not be an issue anymore, so that um, more of us more often can feel strengthened and um, you know um, heal a bit, um, address some of that trauma of not knowing and mm. be in a place of strength more often than a place of distress. Yeah, it's. It, I would imagine, um, you know, having spoken to um, a fair share of uh, survivors from the stolen generation over a, a number of years, I would imagine, you know, this is me surmising here. It would be like trying to navigate the world culturally blind to 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 where you are and where you've come from. And as we know, as Aboriginal people, that is so fundamentally important to us. Um, in, in terms of our sense of ourselves, but also the sense of where we fit within our own um, communities. Uh, I'm speaking with uh, Fiona Cornforth, who was the CEO of the Healing Foundation. It's 8 to 8 here on the mission. Um, before I let you go, um, Fiona, you, you released uh, the Make Healing Happen report in uh, June this year, and, and that has asked of governments and various jurisdictions, a number of uh, things. Um, one of the things that is asked for is national guidelines protocols be established for accessing records by state and territory births, deaths and magistrate, marriages registers and for decision-making by freedom of information um, uh, through commissioners and uh, delegates. Um, is, there, is there much of an appetite uh, at the um, at the decision making governmental um, level to to address some of these concerns. Yeah, look, um, there definitely is. Um, people just generally to know more about it and need to know how critical and important it is. Um, as I said, when the, these um, records were first kept and first stored. It, it wasn't with um, uh, this purpose in mind later on, you know, the accessing of them to to reunite families and to restore connections. It, it wasn't, um, you know, they weren't kept for that purpose. But now that, um, we, you know, the more people understand how, how critical those records are um, for healing, for redress, for reparations and for justice, um the more likely we can remove some of the red tape and have people in key decision-making roles, uh, you know, um, join forces with survivors and, um, yeah, as I said, remove some of that red tape and make it a little easier. Well, it's tremendously important work that uh, you and um, y- y- your team do, Fiona. If, if, is there a way that uh, people listening now can actually support the, the Healing Foundation? Is there um, avenues to do that? Oh, absolutely, and the quickest and easiest way is just to um, get get onto our website and have a look. Um, uh, yeah, healingfoundation.org.au. We also have um, a healing portal uh, run out of Edith Cowan University, which stores a lot of our resources and can point you in the right direction for more information on on the work that we do and what we produce as a result of that work. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out uh, today. I understand that you had a, a very busy day, which is probably most days for you. But um, again, thank you for coming on and talking about um, this very hidden but very important issue. We, we really thank you uh, for, for taking the time. No problems. Always happy to, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives 
of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>